Let me just add my two cents about uh, Father's Day. My dad's probably watching, and um, I love you, Dad, and I'm so grateful for you. Been very blessed to have him. I've had lots of father figures, many of whom are in this room, and I'm grateful for you as well. And I know some of you have lost a father, and uh, this is a tough time. But there's a there's a verse that it, it's it's so incredibly short, and yet seems so comprehensive to me of of the role of a dad and, and what we really need from from dads. It's in First Thessalonians, and it's Paul and Silas and Timothy writing to the Corinthian, I mean the, the Thessalonian Christians. And here's how they describe their love for these, uh, these, these people, this church, um, from a fatherly perspective. It's in chapter 2, and it's verse 11. It says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. And I love, I, that, that's underlined in my verse because that's my dad. He was encouraging and comforting and he, he spurred me on in the direction of my life towards God. And I, so I'm just so grateful for all you dads that do that. I'm grateful for the dads who've done that for me. It's the kind of dad that I want to be to my kids and to others. Um, in my life. So just happy Father's Day. And of course, I just agree with what's already been said that we want to ha- wish our God a happy Father's Day as well as his children. So today, as his children, we are continuing our series uh, through the, the, the book of Luke. And we're in Luke chapter 17 today. And I got to tell you, Luke was not thinking of my sermon today when he wrote this chapter. It's a, it reads and it's as if it's a bit all over the place. I guess Luke had no obligation to be thinking of my sermon today when he wrote it. But uh, it's a bit all over the place. But after having spent a lot of time with it the last couple of weeks, I, I have seen something there. Uh, four messages in particular that weave through the three sections that I see in this chapter that I believe are uh, that surfaced and that I want to share with you. They're what I noticed. And, and it's these messages. These four messages are what I see. I'm just going to tell you at the beginning what, what I'm going to walk you through. Be, and it, they're exhortations to be a certain kind of person. Be watchful, be humble, be grateful, and be faithful. And honestly, the more I, I looked at those four words and those four messages, well, the more I looked at the text, the more I thought, they're not like, they're all over. All four of them are all over the whole chapter, even though I'll be using sections where I first noticed them. But I thought, wow, once I, once I was kind of sketching this out and studying and saying, God, what do you want the body of Christ at Southwest to look at this week? I, I realized these four words, they're a great description of Jesus. They are a great description of Jesus. And so, of course, Jesus is exhorting his disciples to be these things. And so, uh, I want to go through these sections under these headings and just kind of show you and talk about with you these four Christ-like qualities that we as his disciples want to become. We want to be like our teacher, and Jesus is our teacher. So let's go. First one is be watchful. I'm going to start in uh, verse 1. So Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. 
but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. That's where I get this word, watch, be, be watchful. In the first group, there's three, group, three audiences, but the first group that we're supposed to be watchful of is ourselves. And so this first exhortation, he, he wants us to watch yourself. It's not just a generic watch yourselves. He's talking about one specific area in this teaching. He's talking about those things that cause people to sin. So just notice He first explains, look, in the world we're in right now, this is a bummer, but in the world we're in right now, there's no way to avoid it. Temptation's gonna come. It's just the nature of the world we're in now. We're living for a world where that's all defeated and not around anymore, but for now, temptation will come. Things that cause people to sin will come. One one, uh, translation calls them snares. It says it would be impossible for snares to sin, for, that snares to sin will not arise. So in no uncertain terms, he is saying to his disciples, that's the audience, you do not want to be one of those. You in your life do not. They're, they're, snares are coming. Temptation's coming. You are to never be one of those. That's what he's saying. And he uses perhaps his most colorful language to describe how strongly he feels about this. Like he's going all mafia on us here. I mean, put a millstone around your neck, get thrown into the water. That would be better than for you to be the reason someone else sins. Wow. This is important to him. This is important. As I've been in ministry and taking a you know a unique interest in the church and in Christians and in Christianity I've learned that oftentimes Christians and this is not exclusive of ministers sometimes Christian ministers are the very ones who do things that turn people away from Jesus and I'm not talking about like when you love someone in the name of Christ and it's just too hard of a message or it's a difficult message on people and so they turn away that's not causing them to sin i'm talking about when christians or ministers live in a way that's hypocritical or discouraging from from our own sinful hypocrisy to our harsh judgment of people when they sin that can turn people away or just the our insistence of exerting our own freedom on debatable issues that might cause someone else to sin you do not want to be that person that's what jesus is saying it's a strong teaching you do not want to be one of those snares it's really really bad and he explains just how bad it is with his colorful teachings this um this reminds me over in ephesians 5 when paul says this he says be and it's just another maybe more More words to say what Jesus is saying. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of not some opportunities, but every single one. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is the life we're after. The one where the fruits of the Spirit are the normal sights of anyone in the world when they look at us. So the first thing Jesus says to be watchful of is yourself, specifically in that area. However, we're not supposed to be just watchful of ourselves. Now, you'll see that we're not supposed to be judgmental, but we are supposed to be watchful of each other and with a very specific readiness when we do so. So verse three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So while we should not be the cause of others to sin, we should care when others sin. We should care. And there's a way to care. There's a way to rebuke. There's a way, there's a posture we're supposed to have when we care. I feel like that some of us have entered into this practice, and I think it stems from a good place um, where we are so, we, we are so care, we want to be so careful not to be judgmental. We want to be so careful not to be exclusive, right? But to be inclusive. We want to be so careful of all that that we borderline, that we, we don't confront sin when we see it in each other. We don't bring it up because we don't want to be legalistic, right? We don't want to come across as legalistic. And so I'm going to affirm, I don't want you to be judgmental. I don't want you to be legalistic, and I do not want you to be exclusive. That does not mean you do not care when I sin. I still need rebuke. We've made a bad word of rebuke. He doesn't use it that way. We don't need to use it that way. It is a confrontation of something that's bad for me. You're fighting for me when you rebuke me of my sin. And when somebody talks to you about your sin, that's what they're doing. They're fighting for you. And so I think we've taken it too far sometimes. Maybe even borderline approving of other people's sin. Maybe even indulging ourselves in some of those, you know, controversial things that maybe you have freedom to do but could be snares to these little children. And so, but we justify them and we celebrate it with each other because we're celebrating that we're not legalistic anymore or exclusive or, you following me here? I, I don't want you to be those things, but Jesus says we can't take it too far. We need to watch each other, be watchful of each other. And when someone sins, we need to rebuke. There's a, another verse from Paul that, that stuck out to me here. This is in Romans chapter 1. So Romans chapter 1 has this section of scripture that kind of, to me, it's like shows this descent into darkness and sin that some people take. It's, it's a brutal, I've preached it before, it's a brutal spiral down, starting from people who should know God, they should know God, but they kind of put him aside and then they spiral down and it just gets deeper and deeper and worse and worse. At the end of that list, like the climax sin that all of it goes through a bunch but at the top is this one in Romans 132 although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things get this but they also approve of those who practice them 
That's at the top of the list. This is the worst thing. There's a bunch of horrible stuff in there, but at the top of the list is when you approve of someone. See, you've become a snare to someone. It'd be better for a millstone to be around your neck and you get the mafia treatment than to do that. Galatians 6, Paul again puts more words to this idea of rebuke, how to do that. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So we need to care about that. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. Okay, just in case you're going to be legalistic or judgmental or exclusive, he elevates the attitude and the posture and the practice of eager forgiveness. Like you, it's not even a question. I can't wait to forgive someone. That should be our posture. The, the rabbis in that day, one of the commentators told me, I wouldn't have known this, but the rabbis had a saying that anyone who forgave a brother three times when they sinned against him was considered the perfect man. Okay. The perfect person. And so Jesus doubles that and adds one for good measure. And so he's using this exaggeration in their Jewish language that uh, there's no limit to your posture of forgiveness. And he's using that to, to affirm that and to say that because as Paul would later say, love keeps no record of wrong. So we need to be watchful of ourselves and we need to be watchful of each other. And then finally, and most importantly, I see in this next couple of verses, we need to be watchful of God. We need to keep our eyes on God. It says this in verse 5, The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They probably said this because Jesus just said, hey, you need to be better than perfect in terms of your forgiveness, and you should never be a snare to anyone in your behavior. They probably just went, "Um, we're going to need more faith. Could you increase our faith, please? (laughs) I mean, that's how you should be responding too. But this is so interesting because I feel like this next little thing he's saying is you don't need more faith. You don't need a bigger, greater faith. You need your faith to be in a bigger and greater God. Because he can do this. He can do this in you. So they say, increase our faith. And he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it'll obey you. And so that's what it feels like he's trying to say. You've, you've got just a little faith is do it, but it's what you're putting that faith in that has all the power. So keep your eyes on God. So be watchful of yourself, of each other, and of God. And then he moves into uh, a little story here. Yeah, a little analogy he makes. And this is where I see him saying, be humble to his disciples. Just this year, I, I, I almost did the previous three sections and this one, all of them kind of contain this idea of humility, but I'll just let it suffice with this. Starting in verse seven, he says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Okay, so this is kind of some first century humor because the, the relationship of the master and the servant was very well known and And he said, if any of you had a servant, of course they didn't, but if they did, if you had a servant, would you, they'd work all day for you out in the fields with the sheep or in the garden or whatever. And and then you'd come in, would you say, hey, yeah, come on, have a seat. Let me serve you now. That was comedy because no way would that happen. All right. That is not the, the, the backdrop of how they operate as servants and masters. And so he said, no, would you not rather say, 
Prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he then thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? And obviously he didn't have to answer that rhetorical question. No, no, not in that relationship. And so he says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, when I first read this, I felt like maybe Jesus was compromising or contradicting what he makes clear in like the, the parable of the two son, the, you know, the lost son with the older son in particular, that we're not supposed to serve God out of mere obligation and duty. That he's confronting that. It's supposed to be out of this intimate, grateful relationship. But he's not contradicting himself. He's just using this to promote another quality, and that's humility. He, makes it, he just wants to make it so clear that, that no, you, after everything God has done and will do for you, you... You don't then, it's not transactional. You, he's not then obligated to you to give you the great feast because you did some service for him. You should be so in love with the love he has for you that you are eager. You are humbly eager. Please tell me something else I can do for you, God, after what you've done for me, after what you're going to do for me. And so it should be a no-brainer and an honor. So the, the exhortation here to his disciples, I believe, is be humble. Be humble. Then we move into a pretty powerful little story about gratitude. So the exhortation here is to be grateful. Starting in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. He captures some themes that he's made pretty clear through already. Luke is elevating this quality over being born into the right family or being a part of the right religion as evidence of who his people are so he's drawing our attention to two things here one the ingratitude of nine out of ten people who all received what anyone would hear this story an incredible gift i mean when he cured them of leprosy he didn't just make them healthy and feel better their whole social life changed they can move back in with their families they can participate in the Jewish religion. They can go to Passover at the temple. I mean, their whole life, everything they value has just been given back to them. And yet Jesus noticed nine out of 10 of them didn't come back. And then the second thing he pointed out, the one that did was a non-Jew. It was a non-Jew. I've told you Luke makes a point to capture the stories of Jesus that elevated the marginalized and the judge and the outsiders. And I think that's what he's doing here. So again, I believe he's replacing what the Jews thought it meant to be God's person. And that's being from the right family. Children of Abraham is how it's said in Luke a lot. 
or to be in the right religion, the Jewish religion. The markers of someone who belongs to God is this change in them to being a certain kind of person. And gratitude, thankfulness is one of those qualities. And I think there's a direct, this is a whole other, I've done a whole series on this, so I got to be careful here, but there's a direct connection, I believe, to thankfulness and faithfulness. There's something about constantly, it's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. It's, it's us fighting against our, our tendency to forget. My son, Jakin, sitting right over here, he, he died and came back to life not too many months ago. And already there are days I forget. How, how can you forget that? How can we forget that? We forget, and when we forget, we act a certain way, differently than when we remember. That Romans chapter 1, you remember, a lot of our darkness comes from not being grateful. It seems like such a benign thing. Gratitude, you know? Count your blessings. But there's a direct connection to this gratitude that we work hard to maintain in our capacity, our fuel to be faithful. So that Romans 1, I told you it spiraled down. I told you where it ended. Here's where it begins. Here's where that spiral begins. It's in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Where does the foolishness, where does the darkness come from? By not being grateful, by not praising God. The very thing this Samaritan leper did, he came back and praised God with gratitude. There's something about it, something about remembering. So, be grateful. Another powerful quality of Christ that we're called to be. And then finally, and again, I see this all through the whole chapter, but this last section is where kind of I really see it, and that's the call to be faithful. To be faithful. To be faithful to what? Well, you could say to be faithful to being watchful and humble and grateful, right? But it's being faithful in every way you can think that we're supposed to be faithful. So it starts this way. It's, in, it's Luke 17, 20. So I don't know if you've noticed, but in Luke, for the last few chapters, he keeps bouncing back between talking to the Pharisees and the disciples. It's like Luke has him going back and forth. He's like really trying to make a contrast. And I think it, it tells us something about what he's saying when we look at who he's talking to. But this now, we've, he was talking to disciples. Now he's back to the Pharisees who asked a question. It says, once having been asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is. Oh, there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. So this is the start of this section, but the, a, a section that starts addressing something we haven't addressed yet in Luke. Luke kind of springs it on us, but this he has. He has tried to talk to his disciples about the kingdom and that it's not what you're expecting. We're, not, we're headed to Jerusalem, but we're not going there to set up a new government and kick the Romans out and win. You're not going to be able to see, he's now telling the Pharisees, oh, here come the saints come marching into to Jerusalem. They're going to kick out the Romans and, and we're going to have this kingdom. He's saying that's not the kind of kingdom it is. And this is one of my favorite verses where he's trying to say it's just nature the whole kingdom that we're about that we're bringing is a different nature and he says it's within you this this same word could be translated it's among you or it's within your grasp 
So he's getting kind of mystical here, right? But the point is, this kingdom is something that is different than others. It doesn't have borders. You can actually take it across borders wherever you go. A military can't come and squash this kingdom like other kingdoms. So Pharisees, it's not something that you're like, oh, here it is, there it is. God, it's established right there. There's the, the king and there's the castle he lives in and the government that he has set up and we're ruling the world. It's not that way. And something I think was triggered in Jesus, he answers that, but then he goes to his, back to his disciples. It triggered something. Now, this next section starts, and like I said, it's sprung on us. It seems like it's starting to talk about things that we would relate to the end times, okay, the second coming or something. But he sprung it on us, and we don't have a lot of context. I'm just assuming they know what he's talking about, okay? I don't pretend to know everything he's talking about in the second coming, the end times, but I do think we can grasp something at this point in the story from what he says. So then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, and here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning. Really? In what way will it be like lightning? He says, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And then he tells them something he has told them. But first, first, because that could be pretty exciting to them, whatever it means. He says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So again, he's telling them, I've got to suffer and die. And then this is what lets me know he's talking about something beyond the grave because this is something after that. Okay? So, We don't know exactly what he's talking about, but he's talking about something that they knew. They had an idea, and he's saying, but guys, it's not going to... You hear what the Pharisees said about the kingdom? Same thing for me. You're going to be thinking, there he is. Someone's going to tell you that. Don't worry. You don't know exactly when. He says that overtly later, but you'll know it because it's going to be like the lightning. I mean, when the lightning strikes, it's like one, that end of the sky to the other. Everyone sees it, so you'll know. It's... That's the only thing he's saying here is that it's, you'll know, but he's got to die first. So he's talk, but he is talking about some culmination, some future event that completes the transition, the days of the son of man. And he doesn't say what it precisely looks like. Okay. So what I think he's saying, when I put this, what he said to the Pharisees, what he said to the disciples together, it sounds like what he's saying is don't spend all your time like looking for it, like looking for the signs of the coming, the the final coming of the kingdom and my coming. Don't spend all your time looking for it. It didn't work that way anyway. You're not going to be able to say that. Okay, and when it happens, it'll happen. But don't spend all your time asking these kind of questions or pursuing these kind of, you know, secondary things. Don't do that. It doesn't work that way anyway. All right, so that's what we're not supposed to do. What are we supposed to do? Verse 26, he continues to explain a little bit of the nature of this coming, but he also says something else I think answered the question. And it's where I get that, be faithful. It says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Really? In what way? People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Okay. 
Thanks, Jesus, for clearing that up. Right? That's how we feel when we read it. So I'm just trying to say, what, what is the threat of what he's saying in this? The lightning and Noah and Lot. It's, it's they were just living their lives and it happened. Right? It's not something that, like, like don't be looking for it. And why, why would you do that anyway? To get everything in order before he comes? You really think that's God's heart? He wants you to go, yep, here I come. Clean up your act. That's not what he's about. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be grateful. He wants us to do all of these things because it's the best possible life, not because there's some threat of death at the end of life. That's not what he's about. And that's what he's calling. So that's what it seems to me he's saying. Cut out the trying to figure it out and instead go on with your life, but in my way. Go on with your life, but in God's way, the kingdom way. Being faithful to God, being faithful to me, your king, Jesus is saying, and live for the kingdom. Then when it happens, you don't have to look back and regret or be afraid. You don't have to look back. You'll be ready by being faithful, by being watchful, humble, grateful, and faithful. That's the call of chapter 17, I believe. Let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses. They're going to go ahead and move up in the balcony and around the room. If you just need to respond, if you've got something going on, it can be related to this teaching or not, but that's why these folks do this. So please take advantage of that. We're eager to be with you. Let me, let me end with just kind of what hit me in this chapter, something that jumped off the page. And it's right here at the end. I haven't read it to you yet. It's in Luke 17, 32 and 33. Jesus ends with this. He says, he tells them to remember something. He says, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? Some of you are Bible students. You know the story of Lot and his wife. He's already mentioned the destruction, the fire and brimstone. That's where we get that phrase, by the way, hellfire and brimstone preaching. You know, it comes from that story in the Old Testament. Well, Lot lived in one of those towns, Sodom, that was destroyed. But he and his wife and their family, they were, had some faithfulness to God. So what the story was, was that God told them th- that this destruction is coming. And so he told them when to leave. He, he had one requirement. When you leave and the destruction starts to happen, don't look back. Don't look back. Now pause there. Because verse 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. And then verse 33, he follows with this. And I believe it's telling us why he wants us to remember Lot's wife. He says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So the most notable thing about Lot that you remember is she did turn back. And she turned into, this is a strange punishment. (laughs) It's kind of turns into a pillar of salt. That's what's memorable about Lot's wife. There must be some kind of all kinds of interesting connections to what, why that pillar of salt, but I don't know what they are, but it's not relevant to here. What we remember is that she turned around and she was punished for it. She didn't do what God said. And that must be, there must be a connection between her looking back and what Jesus said next, that maybe she was looking back she was trying to hang on to her old life or she was longing for her old life. Instead of going forward where God's taking them, she's looking back. And Jesus says, remember that, guys, because don't look back. 
Don't look back. Be faithful. Move forward with the kingdom. That's where life is. So you, church, don't need to look back, whether you're looking back and you're hanging on to past sin, right? Or you're looking back and you're hanging on to worldly treasures or worldly achievements that you value. Neither of those. Look forward and be faithful. Be humble. Be grateful for what he's done for you. And that will naturally result in your call to be faithful. To be faithful. No need to look back. No need to despair your mistakes. And no need to feel like you're losing much with your treasures. That's the call. So if we can help you in any way, let's stand and let's praise this great God on this Father's Day. And please come if we can help you in any way.